0: Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by the Member of Parliament and historian Chris Bryant, whose new book is called James and John, A True Story of Prejudice and Murder. And the James and John, he describes, are two men who were put to death for homosexuality in the first half of the 19th century. Chris, can you tell me a bit about how how this story first, kind of as it were, caught your eye? Because they're... They're not celebrated figures, at least as
1: far as I know. No, and they're probably not celebrated because they were working class men. They were both servants and labourers and um, who, in many ways, don't get into the history books in any other regard other than the fact that they were hanged in 1835. But I-, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Glamour Boys, which is about a bunch of gay Tory MPs in the 1930s who wanted the UK to stand up to Hitler and some of whom were killed in action in the war. And as part of writing that book, I had to explain the legal situation in the UK regarding homosexuality. And some of the laws that I was referring to stemmed all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars, because when people came back from the wars, the British government introduced a whole series of vagrancy acts, part of which dealt with homosexuality and importuning and and other misdemeanors. And that's what introduced me to, to this moment in history. And it's strange because... If you read a lot of British history, you'll know about the early 18th century and the uh, Molly Houses, Mother Claps Molly House. That was very well reported in, in uh, lots of newspapers and also in, in the court records. And then, of course, 170 years later, you know all about Oscar Wilde and the, the, the love that dare not to know its name. But this period in the middle is hardly talked of at all. One of the things I, I kind of uncovered in, in, in writing the book was quite why that was.
0: Well that is the the really curious thing because one starts thinking maybe you know of course people were you know unenlightened and homophobic and, and rather bloodthirsty and punitive in the past in a foreign country but as you describe it this was a very specific thing that this in the first place Britain had been especially kind of horrified by an intolerant sodomy in a way that you know most of our continental cousins were not but also that the beginning of the 19th century was a point at which they stopped talking about it or, or became hugely prurient and aggressive about it. In a way, there hadn't been, as you say, 100 years previously. What what changed that? What- it feels
1: as if this was a particular time um, in a particular country when the taboo was felt more strongly than anywhere else. You're quite right. The, the French Napoleonic Code didn't have any reference to homosexuality. Most of the other countries in Europe um, if if a if a wealthy British man got in trouble, he went into exile in in Italy, in Venice, or in France, or or wherever else, because the law wouldn't condemn him to death in those countries. And in fact, some people who visited the UK in this kind of period, 1800 to 1835, commented on the fact that men who had formerly greeted one another by kissing in the UK no longer did so because they were terrified that they might thought thaw- be thought of as homosexuals, and consequently shook hands. And, of course, we still shake hands today. And uh, I think what part of this was, I mean, you know, one of my heroes politically, though he was a Tory and I'm not exactly a Tory, um, but was William Wilberforce, campaigner against slavery and, and the slave trade. And, of course, part of his argument was a moral one from a Christian perspective. Some might think of it as quite severe. And there was a degree of moral panic that existed uh, at the beginning of every court sessions, you had to read out a proclamation against for the suppression of vice. And of course, top of the list of vices was homosexual activity. So I think this was a period of a kind of moral panic. It led to more prosecutions and more hangings than in any, any other period. And there's a bit of a mystery why these two men were hanged in 1835, because there hadn't been a hanging at Newgate for anything for more than two years and there hadn't been a hanging at Newgate for homosexuality, for sodomy or buggery, for even longer. The, the court records don't even say sodomy or buggery. They say S-D-M-Y with dashes in between and B-G-R-Y dashes in between. It was said that homosexuality or a sodomy or buggery was the... Was the crime that dare not know its name, that it was an unnamed offence, an unnatural offence. And in fact, when Robert Peel, the Conservative Prime Minister, introduced some legislation in the House of Commons to stop allegations against other malicious allegations of homosexuality against other people. He, he couldn't even bring himself to say the common phrase, the offence which shall not be named amongst Christians. So he said it in Latin. That was the, the, the intensity of the taboo that there was in British society. It's essentially, undone the Reformation's good work. Now. Well, and, and even quite extraordinarily, when so the death penalty continued for homosexuality for another 26 years after James and John were hanged, but nobody else was hanged, everybody else was reprieved. When it was changed in 1861, it was not even referred to as
0: being changed in the debates in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords. So extraordinary that so there's that, that level of a sort of omerta at the same time as obsession. And can I ask also, I mean, before we zero in on the central point, because I think the framing of this and the and the legislative and social history is fascinating. Was there, what was the sort of contemporary account? of homosexuality as we now understand it, because, you know, did they see it as a nature or an identity or as a practice, if you like? Is it? I read that it was just very interesting, someone you quoted saying, you know, who took a kind of liberal view of this, I think it was a man called Tomlinson, who said, how men should possess such a passion, and more particularly so, if it is their nature from childhood, as I am informed it is, which seems a remarkably kind of modern view of it. Was that the the common view? I mean, was it effectively, were you a sodomite or were you simply someone who's committing sodomy? Well, in many ways, it's difficult to know what most people thought
1: because nobody would talk about it or write about it. And the the quote you give there is from a private diary and was probably never intended for publication whatsoever. And, And Jeremy Bentham likewise had had relatively liberal views in this area and campaigned against the use of the pillory for those who'd been caught in the act and, and got condemned for being unmanly for it. So I think a lot of people were frightened to stand up for people in, in this set of circumstances and just hid away. And indeed, there was a row between newspapers because some newspapers thought it was important to report the incident and what somebody was accused of. Others thought that this was somehow promoting vice even to mention the stories. It'd be promoting the idea of men having sex with men and and condemned others for newsmongery, as they called it. And even more bizarrely, the City of London instructed the recorders in, co- in court, in Central Criminal Court, not to record any salacious details of any of these cases. So quite often, literally all we know is the charge, the name of the person, their age, who the judge was, what the what jury considered it and what the sentence was. Nothing else, but extraordinarily, in this case, Henry Butler, who was the shorthand writer at the time, decided to keep records for some reason, and he he he, he printed them up as an appendix. There's no other appendix that I can find anywhere in the Central Criminal Court records.
0: There's, well, this emerges. You know, he emerges as one of the early heroes of the book. I mean, he makes it possible, I guess. <laughs> Do you have a sense of why Buckler thought this is important or this should be preserved?
1: No, but I wonder whether the fact that he did think that it was important is one of the things that led people to reform the law after they were hanged. I mean, we certainly know that from the beginning of the week of the assizes at the Central Criminal Court, so when James, John and William Burnell, the three men involved, would have already been brought to Newgate to await their uh, their trial in the Old Bailey, that the recorder of London, who's the senior judge, had sort of warned people of some pretty hideous case that they were going to have to consider later on in the week. So I think there was already a sense that this was an important case. But you know, one of the other mysteries to me is, this was a time of extraordinary and rapid change. You had a liberal government, well, theoretically, just still a Whig government, but lots of people who would eventually call themselves liberals in it. People like Lord John Russell, the architect of the Reform Act, which had passed in 1832, who incidentally had a relative who was in exile in Italy because he'd been caught in a in a compromising situation with a male waiter overseas. So he knew the score. So you have people like him in the in the government, and you kind of think, so they were reforming the, the factories, they were reforming the combination acts, they were changing corruption in the House of Lords and in the House of Commons. And They were getting rid of the death penalty for lots of other offences, and yet they went ahead with this.
0: Yes, I mean, there is a sort of thread in the book. There seems to be a shift in, I guess, what you now call kind of carceral theory that you've got, you mentioned, which was very severe, that that grand juries had started saying, look, we don't want to be accessories to judicial murder. You know, it's it's, it's, it's just people from within the process were revolting. And this, is this also... The period that gave us the thing that got Naomi Wolf into so much trouble.
1: Uh, yes, well,
0: indeed. I mean, I was
1: quite. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how she made the mistake because it's pretty obvious. But so the, the the issue is that after 1835, you would you would still be um condemned to death, but you would automatically be reprieved. And she thought that people were still being executed thereafter, and they weren't. They were all reprieved. They were all sent off to either Botany Bay or. Um, Hobart in Van Diemen's land, as it was then called, Tasmania today. I mean, there's another thing that changes, of course, around this time. And I think probably my book is the most clear exposition of what happened. This is the recorder's report. So the recorder of London, uh, at the end of the week of Assizes, does all the sentencing. And, And in this case, he sentences all the other people who are to be sentenced to death, separately from James and John, because he thinks that they might contaminate contaminate, that's the word he uses, the other criminals. So they're, they're all sentenced to death. He dons the black cap, he wears the black gloves and all the rest of it, pronounces the sentence that you should be taken from this place to a place of execution and so on. But, and there was no law that said this, but everybody knew it was true, that you couldn't execute anybody who had been sentenced to death at the Old Bailey until the recorder had made his report to the king in Privy Council at what was known as the Hanging Cabinet. And so the men, after their execution, had to wait until this report went to the king and the Privy Council, the recorder's report presented, and they made a decision who would be reprieved and who would live. So that's part of the story, that there's always a chance that they might live because everybody else that they're in Newgate with, in the condemned cells with, knows that they're going to live because they know that there'll be a reprieve. But the recorder's report was abolished in 1837. And lots of people have said that it was abolished uh, abolished because Queen Victoria became the monarch and she she obviously couldn't be involved in decisions because she was a frail woman and so on. Not my view, their view. Um, uh, She couldn't be involved in the decision on who should hang and who shouldn't. But I actually suspect that one of the issues in this case was that the Recorder of London at the time, who was a Conservative MP, had never yet had a hanging. He wanted a hanging. The first thing he did when he was elected as an MP was table an amendment to a bill that was going through the House. And the bill was meant to make it more difficult to get convictions for homosexuality. He was making it easier to get convictions for um, homosexuality. It fell in the House of Lords, but that's what he was trying to do. I think he wanted a hanging. He got a double hanging. And after that, the Liberal government or the Liberals in the government thought, we're not going to put up with this anymore.
0: Is that... Is that the equivalent to the the thing that's occasionally said, that firearms officers are more likely to shoot people in the six months before retirement? I've heard that as well, yes. Well, maybe. I mean, I think if you read lots of
1: people's comments about the process of the hanging cabinet or the recorder's report, I mean, it is quite shocking. Lots of people who went to them said, you know, the Duke of Wellington fell fast asleep and the King fell asleep. Um, Somebody had a fit of the vapours. One day they decided, oh, we haven't had a hanging for ages. It's about time we had one on another occasion, they decide we've had too many hangings this year, we can't have any more. So it's a completely capricious process. And indeed, in this particular case, what is again extraordinary is that James Pratt, the the, the two men considered James Pratt and John Smith. James Pratt was married, his wife Elizabeth, put together an extraordinary petition, begging for mercy, which was submitted to the Home Secretary, to Lord John Russell, and thereby to the hanging committee. But also, and the two people who at the top of the of the of the petition are the two people who, who were the lead prosecuting witnesses, John and Jane Barksh. The, the... the nosy neighbours who dubbed him in. Exactly. Now there's no other case that I could find in this period where that combination of people asking for a reprieve didn't have a success.
0: We've circled so elegantly the the sort of Two figures at the center of your story. We should tell their story quickly. I mean, it's it's because it is a sort of act of reclamation to give them you know, as much as we can find out about them. But in some cases, not least because one of them is called John Smith, that's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, yes, John Smith, born sometime in Worcester. The, the newspaper accounts
1: of his execution give him different ages for him, and therefore it's difficult to track down exactly which John Smith he was born in Worcester, around about 1800. And James... Pratt, who was born in Great Burstead, sort of an outshoot of Ricky, Billericke, or, or Billerickey maybe was an outshoot of Great Burstead in Essex, and I managed to track down quite a bit about him. He came from a, a pretty poor family, which relied on poor law handouts, and both his parents died in different poor house, uh, workhouses in Essex, and he moves down to Deptford. And the story starts with the two of them meeting on the 29th of August, Saturday, the 29th of August, 1835, when James Pratt travels, probably walks all the way from Deptford into town because he's looking for a job. He's had several jobs as a servant to quite important people, but he's out of work at at this time. And he goes to have a couple of pints with his friend who lives in Hoburn, pretty rough district of of old London town, with his friend Fanny Conan. Afterwards, he goes in search of a job, supposedly. And and then we know around about four o'clock in the afternoon, John Smith is spied by John Berkshire, um, who has a house in Southwark, Knock, uh, knocks on the door and says, um, is William Burnell in, Who's the uh, who's been renting a room for the last 13 months upstairs off John Berkshire? And he says, no, he's not in. And John Smith said, actually, no, I've just seen him go in. So he proceeds to go in, and John Berkshire sees James Pratt being admitted through a side door. The two of them go up into William Burnell's room. And then, I mean, this is pretty horrible, really. John Barcher is very suspicious. So he goes into the next door stables, climbs up into the attic, knocks out a tile, peers through it, scrunched up into, into underneath the under, underneath the eaves, and, stare, and looks into the room, William Burnell's room, and sees them sitting on each other's lap and so on. It gets bored, goes back downstairs, tells his wife. His wife decides to go upstairs. And she peers through the keyhole and sees that William Bennell has gone for a couple of pints and James and John are having sex. So she runs downstairs, absolutely incensed, which makes you wonder why she bothered looking through the, do- the keyhole in the first place. And summons her husband who goes upstairs. Um, he is equally incensed, uh, breaks open the door, even though the door wasn't locked, which might suggest that it wasn't quite what he thought was going on. And he then summons a police officer and they get carted off to the police office from thence um, they're committed for trial by Hensley Wedgwood whom we might come on to a little bit later
0: are we intrigued that yes, if certainly James Pratt's wife Elizabeth is this absolutely stalwart woman. do we have any sense of her I mean we know we know what she did and we know that there's obviously you know a great deal of love and compassion and loyalty there but is there is there is there any sense we can get of of
1: her feelings were or... very difficult to to gain any impression. But of course, this must have been shameful and terribly frightening for her because she must have known that this might that her husband might die and they wouldn't have been wealthy. So how was she going to find money to get somebody to copper plate a you know a beautiful petition for her? How could she go around and persuade everybody to sign this petition? She got letters, interestingly, from the doctors who'd looked after her when she was in, in child labour. And she had a daughter, Elizabeth, and a, and a son called Sam, who died quite young. And, and James Pratt's own letter, when he asks for a reprieve, makes it clear that he's, he's, he's never had to rely as a as a grown man on the poor law. He's always paid his own way in life. And so you get this impression of the industrious working class in a tough district, I mean, pretty tough streets, very overcrowded streets in Deptford, simply trying to do their best. And interestingly, one of the, so Hensley Wedgwood, the magistrate, who is one of the Potter families, you know, the Wedgwood Potters, from a very liberal background, he's a philologist, he he likes books, and he likes words and science. He has to, as the magistrate at the Union Hall office, he has to commit them for trial to the Old Bailey. But he then also writes one of the bravest letters of this period, basically saying, look, the only reason that these two men are up for punishment is because they couldn't afford privacy, unlike lots of rich people in this country who would never appear before the courts. And it's it's a brave letter, but it also makes a point because in 1833, just two years previously, two MPs were caught having sex with others. And they managed to get off scot-free because they got the Duke of Wellington and earls and bishops and all sorts to
0: stand up for them in court. Yes, I mean, I'm wondering how much this is a story about class and how much it's a story about your homosexuality and homophobia.
1: Uh, well, it is. Uh, undoubtedly, there's an element of it. I, I didn't want to kind of overwrite that, but it's certainly true. that, And the criminal justice system, of course, what was bent towards punishing the poor more than the wealthy because you weren't afforded a lawyer by the state if you... If, even if you had a lawyer, incidentally, they couldn't speak for you. You had to speak for yourself. But And James or, or Elizabeth Pratt got together quite a cast of people to stand character witness. They were all, you know, one was a Drayman, one was a, the wife of a sailor, one was the wife of a shipwright, um, and Fanny Conan herself. So all these people stood character witness for James, but they weren't earls and dukes and, and the like. And the person who sat on the jury i mean i've I've got the whole list of jurors I know who they were. They all knew each other, or lots of them would have known each other. They didn't even retire to come to a consideration. They did it in a matter of seconds
0: i mean i i I try to get a sense of how much in your view, what James and John underwent was representative of its time or was oddly a kind of last gasp of something you know previous and different because the the sort of general tide seems to be. Towards the liberalisation of the death penalty, towards a reform of, you know, and indeed, as you say, Elizabeth Pratt marshals this fantastic kind of Hail Mary pass for the Haggard Council. And yet, it's kind of ignored more or less by accident, as you describe it. It sounds like it's just rotten luck that none of these things appear on the docket, do they?
1: Well, or is it? The recorder of London's fault. Is it Law's fault that uh, he chose not to present, for instance, Hensley Wedgwood's letter didn't go to the Hanging Cabinet that we're aware of? It's it's difficult to tell. There are lots of things that were changing. Interestingly, in the week that they were sent, uh, that they arrived to Newgate, the government had just decided to have independent inspectors of prisons for the first time. And the first visit they did was to Newgate. And the first people they met were James and John. And then a couple of le- weeks later,
0: Dickens arrives in, in Newgate because he's writing an article for Sketches by Boz. It's extraordinary that Dickens is in there. Did you, I mean, how do you come across James and John first reading Dickens or about charisma?
1: No, because I wouldn't have known that that's who he was. Re- he doesn't name them. And, and he's not specific about their crime. It's only because I now know, you know, reading backwards into it, as it were, exactly what it was about and sim- and similarly some of the reports that the inspectors the prison inspectors give to the house of commons is is similarly you have to read sort of backwards and 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 scroll your way through all the records in queue as well to be able to work out exactly what they're saying
0: two other aspects of the the times that you describe because your your protagonists in some ways are, are you know, quite evanescent figures, you know, it's hard to pin them down as as who they were as people. You know, there's a lot of what historians might call thick description of the surroundings. And the fact that it had become a felony to accuse someone of, you know, homosexual um, solicitation or attempted buggery or whatever, was that a way of sort of trying to institutionalise a blind eye? Well, again, I think there's a
1: bit of class politics in this. Because you've got to remember that, first of all, the Bishop of Claw, aristocratic Bishop of Claw, gets caught in a back room with a guardsman having sex and is chased down the street and ends up fleeing for his life and ends up, uh, uh, you know, escaping and nobody ever hears of him again. But it's it's like a grand cause celebre. Everybody does jokes about the Bishop of Claw. And then, only a few weeks later, Viscount Castlereagh takes his own life, ha- slits his own throat, having told king that he had been accused of the same crime as the Bishop of Claw. Now, I think that for Robert Peel, the Conservative Prime Minister, that was part of the motivating factor to say, you can't just accuse anybody of homosexuality because that is, uh, I mean, a bit like Michael Cassio in Othello, uh, my reputation, my reputation, oh, I have lost my reputation. That is the worst thing you can do to an English gentleman. And again, it was felt that it would be working class men accusing wealthy aristocratic men of doing this, and and so I, I think, and in fact, if you look at all the cases, that's that is what happened. But there were people who got away with this, and and there, and uh, and one of the things I've tried to do is give an idea of how much sex there actually was at the time.
0: I quite like the phrase that they used at the time, and then he felt my yard. Yes, and there's you've got a sign somewhere that says "Beware of the swords." Which I Yes, exactly. Um, also, I wasn't sure whether it was a deliberate joke you had, saying say well, at this, this period the Royal Navy discharged lots and lots of seamen. Uh, you, you might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> but it's an
1: interesting point about the Royal Navy, because some historians have said that the fact that there were so few prosecutions means that there wasn't any homosexuality. <laughs> an alternative view is it was going on all the time, but everybody was turning a blind eye, unless it was for some reason... It fell foul either because of an age difference, which
0: we would agree with, or because of some other blatancy. It does seem to me, you know, we were a country at the time that was peculiarly obsessed and not knowing quite what to do with it. I mean, I, I just because as, as you, even as you describe them, all right, we don't want people accusing, you know, make, making a fuss for the likes of the Bishop of Claw and Ray. But at the same time, you've got which you know suddenly made me think of course of dear george michael all those years later that the police were conducting campaigns of entrapment in cruising spots oh look when
1: people were still being arrested in 1999 and 2000 for importuning that was relying on the 1824 vagrancy act which was there to prevent would to deal with all the people coming back from the napoleonic wars where supposedly good, fine, upstanding English lads have learnt terrible vices off filthy, dirty foreigners. But, but, And it was true. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that the, the police were still using importuning as an offence because they couldn't catch you for anything else.
0: And I'm wondering how you read all these figures, the heroes of liberty you describe. I mean, Wilberforce, you've mentioned. as also, I think, Tom Payne doesn't come out with much credit from all this. But a lot of people who seem to have what we would think of as very well, liberal in a kind of broad sense, views about individual liberty and freedom and, you know, the very press of the law, sort of made an exception for homosexuality.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, um, Lord John Russell, Edmund Burke, Charles Fox, you know, yeah. these are all people who campaigned for liberty in all sorts, of, whether for the American colonists or in France or, you know, opposed tyranny in, in the UK by government ministers uh, and campaigned against the death penalty for well, were, under the Black Act, there were roughly 200 offences which incurred the cap- capital punishment in the UK. And they campaigned against all of that. But the one thing that nobody ever bothered to talk about was homosexuality. It just completely disappears from the political discourse. And the, sad- the biggest sadness of the process is, first of all, that I think if they'd been caught two years later, they would have lived. They would have been transported to Van Diemen's land. As William Burnell was, because he provided the
0: room. Yes, what was his role in your understanding of it? I mean, a sort of panda. Uh, was the panda?
1: It's difficult to know whether James and John met by ass- well they obviously met by assignation, but we don't know whether they knew each other already or you know whether they were lovers or whether they were just you know it, it was a, a, a one afternoon stand, as it were. But William Burnell pri- provided the room, and he had a degree of privacy because he had his own key to the room, which was unusual for a lodger at the time and and he was a retired man it seems that he was married because the records in Aust- in Tasmania suggest that he'd been married and had a child that i can't find who who or or what happened there and he was in his 60s he was originally from bilston near wolverhampton but and there's another element you know which is it struck me that in the end it it took a whole nation to hang a man you needed the crowds to want it to happen and thousands would turn up for public executions outside Newgate. I mean, these were uh, people would take days off from work and people who ran businesses would say to their clients, I'm terribly sorry, obviously on Thursday, none of my staff will be in because it's a hanging day and people and the hangman would sell bits of the noose. There'd be people selling pies. And then almost the moment the execution was over, they people would sell sort of accounts of the event with, with rudimentary images. And there's certainly one of James and John. So it was a bit of a money making expedition as well. But you had to have a criminal justice system that was keen on them hanging. In this case, the the judge was somebody who, as a lawyer, had on one occasion defended a bunch of men who'd been caught in flagrante in a bar, but then basically said... To the jury, you know what you can come to whatever conclusion you want. So he was hardly on their side, uh, and and the criminal justice system at that time. I mean, judges used to boast that they could get through seventy trials in a day, and sometimes the people who were brought up from from the cell underneath would be back down before they'd even realised that they were being examined, let alone having any idea of what what was happening to them. Uh, so I think it took a whole nation to, to to hang a man.
0: You do say in your introduction. The reason this story needs to be told is because it's got some relevance to us now. It's not in the past. It's a warning from history as you like if you like on not... I mean, do you think that this is something that's that we're in danger of returning to, as it were?
1: Well, two things. Um, first of all, all it is now happening in the world, not in the United Kingdom, obviously, but there are countries that still retain the death penalty for homosexuality. And there are instances in Iran, for instance, where people have been very brutally murdered by the state for homosexual for having sex with each other the president of Burundi only recently said that homosexuals should be taken out and stoned and there are pastors in the United States of America who are quite happy to say that homosexuals should be shot in the head so that's one aspect of it and let alone the situation in Russia or in many other countries at 35 countries I think in the Commonwealth still retain anti-homosexuality laws you could argue that that's because they inherited them from us unlike French former Colonies which don't. But I tell you what, so so there's a bit of me that wants to go, you know what, the the safest place for a homosexual man in the 20th century in the world was Germany in 1930, when nobody, you know, when the Weimar Republic didn't impose any sanction against homosexuality. And in 1936, Hitler was arresting people, sending them off to concentration camps, and, and many died without any memorial of any kind. So the, the 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 liberties that we've won today are not ones that are guaranteed forever. But I tell you that. Did you know that we hanged homosexuals? I
0: did. I think I knew that we hanged them in the past. I don't think I'd have said if, it, if you asked me when did we last hang homosexuals. I'd probably been surprised by eighteen thirty-five. Yeah, quite.
1: And well, I I bumped into Oliver Letwin a few weeks ago, and I said to him, I was this book was coming out. He said, I knew we, tre-, and he was one of the architects of you know same-sex marriage under um, under David Cameron, and he said to me. I'm gobsmacked. I had no idea that we used to hang people. I knew we were terrible. I didn't know we used to hang people for homosexual practices. So that's there's part of me that just wants us to know the full history. And wouldn't it be nice? I don't know why we can't issue a posthumous pardon to James and John. I don't know why we haven't got anywhere a statue that just records the fact that this is something
0: we did for a period of our time. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you knew any MPs, maybe you could get up and changes up in Parliament. Oh, MPs are rubbish. No <laughs> well, if we could try. Chris Bryant, thank you very much indeed for your time.
1: Thank you.